So as you're turning there to 2 Timothy chapter 2, let me go ahead and dismiss our kids. Y'all can go ahead and head out to Children's Church. Thank you, Miss Karen, for helping out and coordinating that week after week. So today is kind of our, like I said, our, our back-to-school Sunday. I had the opportunity to preach last year when we had the, that back-to-school Sunday. It seems like they keep getting earlier and earlier every year. But last year, we looked at Deuteronomy chapter 6. We look at the command where Moses tells the Israelites to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their might. Then they're to teach the commands of God to their children. And it passes on from generation to generation. They're to make use of these everyday opportunities to disciple their children. It says inside, outside, when you're in private, when you're out in public. In church, just like last year, that, that has not changed. We still need to disciple the next generation. The, the statistic I gave you last year is still accurate this year. The statistics tell us that the number one predictor of whether a student will be in church after high school is how many people are investing in their life during those high school years. Are they being discipled in those high school years? That's the number one predictor of whether or not people are still in church after they graduate. So yes, we absolutely need to disciple the next generation. And I love kind of kicking off the school year speaking about discipleship. However, church family, let's not think that it's only the youth that need discipleship. This is across the board for the church. The rest of us need discipleship. I need discipleship. I'm pretty sure if you ask Brother Will, he would say he needs discipleship. All right, We, we don't graduate out of that at some point in our lives. But today, let's kind of unpack this a little bit. So what does biblical discipleship actually look like? Well, I think Paul gives us a pretty good model. Would you stand with me, please, for the reading of Scripture? We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 6 today. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this chance to see Paul's model of discipleship and your model of discipleship. Lord, as we walk through the scriptures today, Lord, I pray that, that, that this text comes alive for us. This is not something that we see that was done 2,000 years ago. Lord, help us best understand how we fulfill your great commission by making disciples of all nations. What does that process look like? How does it start? Lord, help us to flesh that out today. Lord, we love you. We simply want to follow your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we look at this passage, it starts out in verse 1. It says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So verse 1 is pretty clear. Where, where does our strength in this life come from? Where does our strength specifically even in discipleship come from? Strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This isn't a 
a race that you run on your own and on your own strength. Paul knows this. So Paul isn't writing 2 Timothy from a uh, beach paradise. He's not on vacation when he writes this. No. Some of the context here for Paul, he's very likely writing this last letter to Timothy from prison. Many of those who he has ministered to in Asia, they've all turned away from him. Many of his other partners in ministry, they're out traveling, doing ministry in different areas. It's some of the context. Paul is not in an easy season of his life as he writes this. Yet he writes his final letter to his faithful disciple, Timothy. I mean, he, you see there in chapter 1, he says, You then, my child. He sees Timothy as his son in the faith. Now think about this. If you've mentored somebody for years, you've poured into somebody for years, and this is kind of your last chance, this last letter, you're not going to have a lot of fluff, right? You're going to give them a final charge. And so that's what Paul is doing here in this letter. Later on in chapter 4, Paul says that he has finished the race. This ministry of Paul's is now being passed on to Timothy. For Timothy to take up that mantle and continue the ministry. So what instructions does Paul have for his protege, for his apprentice, for his disciple? What is he going to communicate with this guy as Paul is stepping out of that role? We see verse 2, or really, well, verse 1 and verse 2. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Be strengthened by the grace of Christ and make disciples. That's the push that we see here in the beginning of chapter 2. And in this passage, we, we get to see a little bit of Paul's method of disciple making. Does Paul use the, the, the mass rallies or the crusades? Not really. Does he teach classes to hundreds and thousands of people? Not necessarily. Now, those things are not bad, and there is a place. We, we, right? we, we see multiple times in Scripture where Paul is speaking to large crowds, or Jesus is speaking to large crowds. But his main method of discipleship is pouring into the few. And by the way, is this not pretty much the exact same model that Jesus employed? Did Jesus feed the 5,000? Yes, he did. But then he turned and spent time with his 12. And if we really dial in, Jesus really spent time with the 3. He didn't even take all 12 up to the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He took the 3. Oftentimes, Jesus pulls aside with this small group of guys and really pours into their lives. That's what we see in Paul's model. That's what we see in Christ's model. But then it kind of begs the question, right? Because especially in today's culture, we want bigger, we want lots of numbers, we want lots of flash. Jesus, Paul, did y'all not know that there's thousands and millions of people that need to be saved? Why are you messing around with three guys over here? Like, you said that the gospel needs to go to all the, the end of the earth. Why not send that 5,000 out that you just fed? Why are we focusing on the few? I mean, wouldn't fill in the Colosseum with a bunch of people to share the gospel? Wouldn't that be more effective? Why are we focusing on just the few? Because biblical discipleship uses multiplication, not addition. Right, how so? Just look at the text. Let's, let's, let's dig back into the text. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. 
It says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We see four generations of discipleship in this text. All right, kind of, kind, of, kind of walk with me for a minute, all right? Four generations. So, we start out with Paul, first generation of discipleship. It's passed down to Timothy, second generation. Passes it on to faithful men, third generation. Who passes it on to those who are able to teach others also, fourth generation. So, we see these four generations of discipleship here. All right, well, how many people are actually being discipled in this model? So, Paul starts out, you've got one, right? Paul only adds one guy, Timothy. But, I mean, I guess it's 100% return on your work, right? I mean, he, he doubles. You start with Paul, you have Timothy. You've got two guys. They're to in, Paul, Timothy is to entrust his teaching to faithful men. It's plural, so we'll say at minimum it's two. So, you go from two to now you have four, right? Those faithful men are then to teach others. Again, it's plural, so we'll say at least two more for each. You're now at eight disciples. So with Paul started with one disciple. We now have eight. But how many people did Paul himself disciple? One. He discipled Timothy. And the gospel is passed on and multiplied and reproduced through Timothy to faithful men who then taught others. Let's, let's take this even a little bit further, all right? If we had a very faithful evangelist, a very faithful missionary, that person led 100 people to Christ every year. I mean, we would celebrate, right? They'd probably get a book deal. Like, I mean, we would very much celebrate, as we should. We want people to come to faith in Christ. But say for year in, year out, that person's leading 100 people to Christ. We celebrate that as a church. Well, on the other end of that spectrum, let's say that we have a disciple maker. He leads one person to Christ, disciples one person a year. How long does it take for that disciple maker numerically to overtake the evangelist? So in 10 years, how many people has that evangelist led to faith in Christ? That evangelist has led 1,000 people to faith in Christ. That is fantastic. Again, praise God for that. But in 10 years, that disciple maker with the one disciple, there's now 1,000 disciples. Because the multiplication catches up to addition pretty quick, doesn't it? By the way, if you spread that out over a 30-year ministry, you top 1 billion with a B. Folks, numerically... Purely numerically, multiplication of disciples is the way to go. Biblically, multiplying disciples is the way to go. Not to mention, not only do you have a thousand converts, now you have a thousand disciples that are ready to disciple others. But let's kind of keep digging on in, in this 2 Timothy 2.2 passage. Let's, what is Paul's method of disciple-making? What does that look like? All right, So we see, he says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Kind of as we, I know Jeremy does this on Wednesday nights, but kind of as we go through a passage, let's, let's dissect this passage a little bit. So 
Let's ask kind of the five W questions. You know, the who, what, when, where, why. So what's the what? What is Paul asking Timothy to do? What is Paul passing on to Timothy? And what is Timothy passing on? What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. This is the teachings of Paul. This is the teachings of Christ. This is the teachings of the Scriptures, right? The Gospel and those teachings. This this discipleship must be based in the Word, first and foremost. Otherwise, if, if it's not based in the Word... You're making a good friend, but you're not making a disciple. Discipleship must be centered around the Word. That is the authority that we live by. You look at Jesus' final command in Matthew, Matthew 28. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That teaching aspect is there as well. What are they teaching? All that Christ has commanded. The the, the teaching, the commands of Scripture. The Word of God must be central in our discipleship. Right? We got what? Who? Who is Timothy to disciple? And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men. Faithful men who will be able to disciple others also. Now, now, I want you to catch this difference here. Evangelism, we speak to everybody, right? We share the gospel with anybody that's slowing down long enough to listen to us. We are bold with the gospel. We want to proclaim it to the crowds, that's to the 5,000, to the, to the Colosseum. We want to proclaim the gospel broadly. Yet Paul here is telling Timothy to entrust those teaching that discipleship to faithful men. Those who are already being faithful in their walk with Christ. There's some character qualities involved now, right? Those that are actively serving, those that are actively pursuing Christ. Timothy is going to focus his attention on those that are already being faithful. Timothy can look for that track record of faithfulness and begin pouring into these men's lives. Then they turn around and do the same, looking for more faithful men to pour into. For the when and the where, I think the Great Commission kind of defines that for us, right? We had it on the screen just a minute ago. Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go, where? To all nations. We make the disciples here in Dixie, we make them in Hattiesburg, in Mississippi, and to the ends of the earth. We make disciples today in Dixie, and we make them in the far reaches of the globe. But then we get that last W question, why? Isn't that always the fun one? Like, you you can define the other things pretty simply. But then you get to why, that's usually the one that kind of stirs it up a little bit. Why do we follow this model of discipleship? Why not follow the world's model and just have big and large and and mass groups of people? Again, that's great in evangelism and other contexts, but not in discipleship. Why do we follow this model? Well, to be really straightforward, this is what the Scripture tells us. This is the model we see of Paul. This is the model we see of Timothy. This is the model we see of Christ. Really pouring your life into the few and having them reproduce themselves in others. 
Folks, this is the narrative that we see throughout Scripture. This, this isn't something new that was created or invented in the New Testament. I mean, we see it here in this passage, yes. Paul calls Timothy, my child. They have that close relationship as a father and a son in the faith. I mean, you look to examples in the Old Testament. Look at Moses and Aaron, Moses and Joshua, Eli and Samuel, Elijah and Elisha. There, there's multiple examples all throughout Scripture of the next generation being discipled in that small group or one-on-one mentoring relationship. We see it throughout Scripture. But I want to point out a, a, yet another passage that may not be, seem as natural in discipleship, but it's here. So keep your finger in Second uh, Timothy chapter 2. We'll be back. But in Mark chapter 4, this is the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, depending on how your scripture puts a title on that. Jesus begins by telling a parable to the crowds. He says, there's a sower who goes out to sow seeds. Some seed falls along the path and the birds come to eat it. Some seed falls on rocky ground. It springs up, but because there's no root, it quickly dies. Some seed falls among thorns that choke out the plant. And then there is a fourth kind of seed that falls on good soil, grows up, reproduces, yielding 30, 60, or 100-fold. Disciples don't really fully understand the, the parable, so he explains it to them, starting in verse 13. He says, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who, when they hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are those who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold, sixtyfold, or one hundredfold. Folks, for those of us that the gospel has fallen on good soil, the gospel has come to us, we've come to faith in Christ, we see the model there of it is reproducing. The seed doesn't fall and one plant grows up and that's it. We see it reproducing 30, 60, or 100 fold. Again, this multiplication of discipleship is a biblical model we see all throughout Scripture. So, so far this morning, we've kind of seen the, the biblical directives, the commands to make disciples. But let's, let's also be very honest and practical, right? In that day, Jesus' disciples, they pretty much dropped everything and followed him for 30 years, or sorry, for three years, not 30 years, followed him for three years. That may not be what our model of discipleship looks like today. That's okay. But we still must keep those core principles in discipleship, entrusting the word to faithful believers who will turn around and do the same for others. All right, well then let's ask the question, what does faithful discipleship look like today, 2023, about to start the fall semester of school? What does it look like? What, what might that model look like in life today? Reproducing your faith and devotion to Christ and the Scriptures and to the life of someone else so that they can then 
produce more disciples. When I say reproducing your faith and your devotion to Christ, that's weighty, right? That's a heavy charge. But according to Paul, this is also biblical. Just listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul calls his disciples, he says, hey, look to my life as what a faithful follower of Christ should look like because I am following Christ. Now look, that's weighty. That's a hard one for me to say. It would be really difficult for me to say, be an imitator of Brad as I am of Christ. But this is what we see Paul saying to his disciples. And it begs the question, right? Are we following Christ in a way that if others imitated our faith, they would be imitating Christ? If people are imitating our life, if they're going to be imitators of us, are they then going to be imitators of Christ? That's a heavy one, but this is what we're seeing in the Scriptures from Paul. For being honest, aren't folks pretty much already watching us? Isn't the next generation already watching our faith? They're going to imitate us whether we like it or not. Let's give them a good example to follow. This concept of discipleship really shouldn't be foreign to us. We understand it in other aspects of life, whether it's apprenticeship or, or parenting or things like that. It, it's, not that it's not that foreign. So a few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go back uh, to see my folks in Arkansas. And it was one of those trips where just logistically, it was just me and Levi. So we went back to see my parents. And on the way up, I called my dad and I said, hey, go ahead and go out to the store, pick up some worms. We're going fishing tonight. Levi had been begging to go fishing. Go out there, throw the lines in the water. Dad pulls in the first one. Of course, he always beats me. He pulls in the first one. And then I have one. Then Levi says, Dad, let me try. So I help him cast it out. Hits the water. It wasn't 10 seconds. He had a bite. I helped Levi set the hook, but then I backed off. He's reeling it in. Taught Levi, okay, well, hey, this is how you grab the fish by the lip, pull the hook out. Took a little convincing to get him to stick his hand in the fish, but hey, he did it right. Is that like a really sweet father-son moment? Yeah, it was. It's not that different than discipleship. Teaching the next generation how to do the things, how to live in the faith. Oh, and by the way, who taught me to fish? Dad. Who taught my dad to fish? His dad. It's not that different. Sometimes when we hear the word discipleship, we like to think of this big program or big event or big curriculum. It doesn't have to be that complicated. We're the ones that are making it that complicated. It's passing on our faith to the next generation in the faith. Folks, if I'm being honest, I spend a lot of time in the youth and college world, right? But everyone in this room, everyone in our culture is being discipled. Everyone's being discipled. It's just by what or by whom are you being discipled? You're going to be discipled by what or by whom. In the void of biblical discipleship, our culture loves to step in and say, hey, young generation, if you're not going to have biblical discipleship, let me fill this in for you. Let me tell you what you should believe. Let me tell you what the, the worldview you should have is. 
everyone's being discipled. But by what or by whom? Church, if there is if there is ever a time to double down on biblical discipleship, it is now. All right, well, let's, let's kind of get down to some of the practical of today. We started out with the theological principle. We see what Paul has laid out for us. We've talked a little bit about how discipleship is not necessarily like this big, grand, difficult, complicated thing. So practically, what, what does it look like day in, day out? I would suggest that there's two main avenues for discipleship. One-on-one discipleship and small group discipleship that are effective. One following more of the model of Paul, one following more of the model of Christ. In either setting, we pursue three main components from biblical discipleship. A focus on the word, the sharing of life, and accountability. So first, these discipleship groups, they focus on the word and prayer. We see this even in the New Testament back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. I'm sorry, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. So some groups, as you saw Caleb talking about in the video a minute ago, some groups, maybe they'll be on a Bible reading plan together. They're walking through the same passages. Other groups, it may just be you meet together. Hey, what have you been studying this week? How's the Lord been speaking to you? Some of the groups, I know, I know some of our, our youth, they text each other in the mornings. What you been reading today? Tell me about what you've been reading. How you been praying? It, it, it's, it's a shared focus on the Word. Why? Because the Word is what grounds us. The Word is our guide in discipleship. Because if I'm being honest, we don't need more carbon copies of Brad, just me. We need more disciples in the faith. The scripture is what I want to reproduce in those I'm discipling. All right, so we talked about the, a devotion to the word and prayer. Number two is having a shared life together. We saw that very clearly with Jesus and his disciples, right? They dropped everything and followed him for years. That may not be the model today, but we see it still with Paul. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.8, it says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you become so very dear to us. Share life with those you're discipling and those you're being discipled by. Grab dinner together. Go to the kids' ball games together. On the holidays, celebrate together. Do life together. Spend time together in fellowship and in community. And if I'm being honest, usually those best and most authentic times of discipleship come when they are not planned. It's usually conversation after dinner. It's usually, uh, a lot of times I see a lot of those happening in the parking lot after church, right? They're not planned. It's just those good conversations that you're having with those that you're walking through life with. Third, and I'd say often the most overlooked aspect of discipleship is that aspect of accountability. Being accountable to one another. I actually did not. I, Daniel created the video. He, he did a great job with it. I had no idea what Briar was going to say. But he quoted this verse off already. James 5, 16. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. How many of us really enjoy confessing our sins to other people? Isn't that real? 
pleasant, right? Like, none of us just say, hey, I messed up this way this week. Like, we, we don't really get excited about that. But in the Scripture, it tells us that healing comes from confessing our sins and praying for one another. I think that's one of the, the key aspects in a discipleship group is knowing someone, being close enough, being vulnerable and trusting to have those conversations. Hey, I'm really struggling in this area of my life right now. Hey, I'm really struggling with my parenting right now. Hey, marriage right now is not going great. Hey, work right now is really a struggle for me. This sin in my life is really, it's just got me by the throat. I need y'all to pray for me. And having those in your group to pray for you, to lift you up, to check in. Hey, man, I know this was really hard. I know you had that big meeting at work today. How'd it go? Hey, I, I know the kids are really, like, they're really on your nerves this week. You're struggling with this issue. How's that going? Man, when you get those texts, when you get those phone calls, oh, it is life-giving. When those people in your discipleship group care about you, they work through those sins and those struggles together. Is that difficult? Yeah, it requires a lot of vulnerability and a lot of trust. Oh, but it's worth it. So let me kind of pull back the curtain for just a minute. So we've, we've talked a lot today, but let me kind of pull back the curtain on what some maybe real-life models may look like. So for me, one of my groups that I, I have the pleasure of being in, we meet every other week, Tuesday nights, 7 o'clock at McAllister's. Just a handful of us guys, we, we start out, conversation always starts out, hey man, how's your life, how's your marriage, how are the kids, how's work going, how, how are you doing, let's catch up. But then we ask three questions, we say, what are you studying in the Word right now? How's the Lord speaking to you? How are you serving right now? How's your integrity? It's pretty simple three questions, but they're loaded, aren't they? What are you studying? How are you serving? How's your integrity? Through these three, we get a chance to focus on the Word in prayer. We get to have that accountability. We get to share life together just with these simple questions. From what comes out, hey, this week, pray for me. I've got this big test coming up. Hey, pray for me this week. There's this big thing at work. Hey, pray for me right now. There's this major stressor in my life. Hey, I'm really struggling with this area of sin in my life. Pray for me this week. And it's great when these guys the next week or two weeks out say, hey, a couple weeks ago, you were really having a hard time with this. I've been praying for you. How's that going now? They know and they care and they love you. It is a sweet season. I love, it's one of my favorite times getting together with those guys. Now, is this group perfect? No, it is not. Is it the only model? No, it is not. But it works for us. And church, let me encourage you. This is not, that's not the only group like this that happens at Dixie. So I've got my group of guys that I get together with every other week. Why do we have it every other week? Because on the other week, our wives get together for our Bible study at Deb's house. Jeremy has a group of guys that he meets with. I know Lauren Cook has a group that she is meeting with. I know Miss Karen has a group that she meets with. Brother Will has a group of guys on Tuesday mornings, early in the morning. They get together and they walk through the book of Romans. That's not light reading for Tuesday mornings. But there are groups like this in our 
church that already exists. If that's something that you would like to get involved in, come talk to me. Come talk to Jeremy. We would love to help get you plugged in in one of those groups. Is that a step where it may be a little uh, intimidating at first? Yeah, but that's okay. I hope I don't get in trouble with Brittany for saying this, but we were talking earlier outside of the... uh, I, yeah, I don't want to get in trouble with Brittany because Caleb's a lot bigger than me. Um, <laughs> we're talking earlier just right outside Sunday school classes. Hey, thanks for helping out in that video. I really appreciate it. And she shared, yeah, at first when I heard about discipleship group, I wasn't real sure about that, but just the blessing that has come from it. It's okay to be a little nervous stepping into one of those type situations. That's great. That's fine. Oh, the blessing that has come out of groups like that. Well, if there's so many of these blessings, there's so much good going on, then why are more people not involved in a group like this in the church in America at large today? Because discipleship is difficult, but it's the intentional path for the believer. Let's pick back up in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2, picking up in verse 3. It says, share in the sufferings of a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Paul compares the life of discipleship with that of a soldier to start with. He very likely knows what the life of a soldier is like, since he's been chained to one in the past, right? He understands that. Does the soldier give up and stop when it's difficult? No. It says that the soldier, his aim is to please the one who enlisted him or his commanding officer. Paul then uses the imagery of the athlete. Most people don't ever see the training that goes in for the athlete. Usually nobody praises the athlete when he loses, right? It's only when you have the win. But the athlete knows that that race is worth running. Farmer, similar story. You don't see the early mornings. The sweat, the pain that goes into the farming. Yet, without the farmer, that next generation will never be fed. Same with discipleship. Without the labor, the next generation does not get fed. Thankfully, we see back in verse 1 that we're to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This, we don't rely on our own strength to do these things. But Paul's saying, hey, this discipleship model, it may not be easy. And trusting what you've heard from me, Trusting that to faithful men who will teach others also. That is not going to be an easy task. Yet it's worth following through. But I want to point out here as we're, we're, we're closing up here today. There in verse, verse 4. I'll go back in verse 3. Verse 3. Share in the suffering of a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Maybe your translation says the affairs of everyday life. Either way, the, the soldier, his aim is to please his commanding officer, the one who has enlisted him. Now, this isn't to say that those civilian pursuits are bad things. They're not bad things. They're just not appropriate for a soldier that is on active duty. No, that soldier needs to have the focus of serving in his proper role and a focus of pleasing his commanding officer. So let's ask the question, believer. Have we become entangled in civilian pursuits? Maybe maybe let's ask this question a little more directly. 
Are there good things in your life that are keeping you from doing what God has asked you to do? Are there good things, because civilian pursuits aren't bad things, are there good things in your life that are keeping you from doing what God has asked you to do? Are there things that are eating up your time and your focus and your priority that's keeping you from making disciples? I don't think the church is opposed to making disciples and discipleship. I think oftentimes we've entangled ourselves in civilian pursuits. No one in here is going to be opposed to discipleship. No one's going to walk out the back, or I assume, I assume nobody's going to walk out the back doors afterwards and be like, Brad, I can't believe you're preaching on discipleship, really? We're not opposed to discipleship. But oftentimes, we've entangled ourselves in these civilian pursuits. Our schedules are too packed, our priorities are elsewhere. We see so much in, of today's text, the life of Paul and his model of making disciples. I'll say that in this, we see Another good model, that every believer needs to have two types of people in their lives. Every believer needs to have a Paul figure, that mentor in the faith. Every disciple needs to have that Timothy figure, the one that you're pouring into and discipling. Everyone needs a Paul who is consistent, more mature than you in the faith. Someone that can help shepherd you as Paul shepherded Timothy. And just like we saw in 2 Timothy, be that faithful and teacher, teachable disciple to your Paul. Find that mentor in the faith. But then on the other side, everyone needs that Timothy. The person that you can pour into, the person that you can mentor, the person that you can pass your faith on to the next generation. Who are you directly discipling? Find that person. Find that faithful and teachable disciple. So as we close today, I want to ask the question, what is the next step in this discipleship process for you? Is it finding that Paul and that Timothy to pour directly into your life? Is it finding a small group that can help hold you accountable and walk through the scriptures together, discuss the scriptures, chew on the word together? What might that next step be for you? Now, you may kind of stop and go, well, hey, whoa, hang on, Brad, like I... I am not a theologian. I don't really have anything to disciple somebody with. Hey, you know, every Sunday, Jeremy puts these notes in the bulletin right there. If you take that out, hey, let's grab lunch. You've got a curriculum right there. We don't have to make it complicated. We take the word, take maybe what you're studying that morning, pass that on to the next generation maybe you say well brad I, I like what you're saying i understand that but where like how do i even find people like that that need discipleship how do i even go about starting initiating those types of discipleship relationships where do i find those people folks college students are hungry literally but they're hungry for the word i, I can tell you right now when they come back here in a couple of weeks they would love to have someone sitting in these pews say, hey, you got lunch plans after church today? I'd love to buy you lunch. Let's discuss your faith. T tell me some of your story. Hey, how can I walk alongside you? How can I help you grow in your faith? They would love that. What about the young families in our church? What young family in this church would not love to have a, 
an older couple come alongside them and say, hey, we would love to walk with you through this. Hey, can we come to the kids' ball games? We'd love to share life with you. Hey, do you mind if we keep the kids tonight so y'all can go out and enjoy a night away? Oh, you're having some kind of marital struggles? Hey, well, this is how we handled this 20 years ago in our marriage. What young couple would not love to have an older couple like that discipling them? Church, this generation is hungry for discipleship. I, I, I spend a lot of time with the younger generation. They are hungry for discipleship. When I was a teenager, the, 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 the kind of push then was a lot of flash and lots of fancy, everything being really slick. I could tell you right now, the younger generation sees straight through it. They want authenticity and people walking side by side with them in this faith. Church, we cannot give this next generation over to the culture to be discipled. So today I'm going to ask you to do something just a little bit out of the norm, and that's okay. So go ahead, you've got your bulletin or your smartphone. Feel free to pull that out, pull out a pen real quick for me. This will be a little different than what we typically do. I want you to write two words down there on your bulletin or on your, or on your smartphone, wherever you want to. Write down Paul. Write down Timothy. Paul, that person that's a mentor in the faith. Timothy, that person that you are discipling in the faith. As you write those two down, I want you to think for a minute. And I'm going to give you just a, just, just a, just a, a, a brief period of time. And if it's quiet in here, that's okay. Think for a minute. Who might that person be in your life? Or who could that person be in your life? Who could that person be that will disciple you and walk with you? Who could that person be that you're going to pour into? I'm going to give you 15, 20 seconds. And if it's quiet in here, that's okay. Think through that for a minute. Who could that person be to disciple you? And who could that person be that you're going to disciple? All right, now, as you've written those names down, take that this next week. Pray over it. Don't talk to them yet. Pray over that. Ask for some of the Lord's guidance. Could this be a person that could pour into my life? Could this be a person that I could pour into their life? Church, I'm going to close on this. What needs to be the next step for you in discipleship? What's that next step in discipleship for you today? This is how Christ has taught us to pass on the faith. This is how Paul has demonstrated discipleship. This is how the Great Commission commands us to get the gospel to the nations. So close out today, Dixie Baptist. I pray that you would multiply your faith in making disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we do praise you for the fact that you... You've put those people in our lives that care about us, that they do want to disciple us, they do want to care for our spiritual growth. Lord, help us to be a church that is faithful in making disciples and multiplying disciples. We love you and we praise you, Lord. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen.